This episode of Searching for Ghosts contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Searching for Ghosts. My, my gut feeling is that Mark Burns had something to do with it. And uh, I still I'll go to my grave thinking that he's wanted to it. She was, she was picked up by her friend and her friend's uncle after she was dropped off. She was taken to Mark Burns. They were going to confront Mark Burns because Mark Burns had raped Casey. The timeline of the night in question is critical. Where was Mr. X on the night of? I would like to think that if he requested numerous times and given a polygraph, the police looked into his whereabouts that night. It's 115 degrees in the shade today in West Tennessee. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but not by much. The temperature gauge on my car is holding steady at 100, and my AC is on the fritz. I stopped to get a much-needed haircut, so I will at least be somewhat presentable for a meeting that I'm headed to. I might be drenched in sweat, but my hair will look good, right? That was my reasoning anyway. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I wanted to make a good first impression at this meeting. I needed to have anything I could find working in my favor for this appointment. With whom am I meeting, you ask? Why is this so important? Well, it's important because this person doesn't even know that I'm showing up at his house. And what I'm about to ask him is not your everyday fare. He might have a piece of paper that contains a dying man's account of what happened to Casey Lynn McDaniel. A piece of paper that he doesn't even know that he possesses. I obtained an address for this man, but no working phone number. So it might be hot as hell outside, but I'm going in cold. going to be the weirdest thing anybody's probably come to you with. I'm Brandon Barnett. I'm doing an investigative thing on Casey McDaniel. Has the cops ever come to you about a briefcase that you've got? I'm Brandon Barnett, and this is Searching for Ghosts. I guess I should go back and explain how I ended up on this man's front porch. In going through old newspaper articles, I found something that I'd never noticed before. It was a statement from then-lead investigator Jerry Hartsfield from the May 26, 1997 edition of the Jackson Sun. Quote, There's a witness, Hartsfield said. Somebody here in Milan knows. She knows but won't step forward. Hartsfield has spoken to the woman once when she telephoned police anonymously. He believes she lives in Milan but has not had contact with her since, unquote. Hartsfield, now retired, is the only member of law enforcement, former or current, who will speak to me. He now resides in Canada, 
and is always willing to talk when I call. But after 21 years, his memory is not the best. And this anonymous tip was made just nine months after Casey went missing. You got a woman that you thought was in Milan, an anonymous call, and she said she knew. I don't know if she was a witness. I think that's the word you use, witness. But she wouldn't. She would never come forward, and uh, I don't think you ever heard from her again. I'm just wondering what information, because the way the article read, you were sure she had some good information. I'd like to smoke her out if that was real, if you could remember anything about that. So I was surprised when he immediately started giving me details on this call. He even told me who the caller was and how to find her. Then I realized that this wasn't the same call mentioned in the 1997 newspaper article. He stated that this was a more recent phone call that he had received after moving to Canada. She contacted Hartsfield because she said she didn't trust anyone down here. This is something that I hear quite often. In this case, with all the rumors that fly around, trust issues are of epidemic proportions. I know. I have them too. She knew what happened to Casey. And, uh... She didn't know she held it back and she never revealed it. And she should have told me before. And I told her, I said, why hadn't the hell hadn't you come before, forward before? And uh, she said, I didn't know who to trust down there. And uh, I saw your stepdaughter and, and, I, and I got your phone number. And uh, she called me up here. Hartsfield indicated that he immediately contacted Gibson County Sheriff Paul Thomas and gave him this information. And then I called Paul. Paul was in Nashville. That's before he took office. And I called Paul and gave him the information, but I never heard anything back from Paul. uh, I got really excited because Hartsfield stated that this tip was concerning Mr. Y, not Mr. X. There was something about Pete. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So I track down this tipster and give her a call. It's always awkward trying to explain what it is that I do. The word is getting out, but we still have to explain what a podcast is to many people that we talk to. But once I mentioned Casey's name, she turned down the blaring television and proceeded to tell me everything she knew. So here's the rundown. In 2006, she was visiting her former husband in prison in Arkansas. He told her a story and stated that if anything ever happened to him, she needed to tell it. He stated that Mark Burns, Mr. X, had admitted to him and Cindy's sister at Beach Lake in Lexington, Tennessee, that Burns had raped Casey and later strangled her after she threatened to tell. Burns allegedly disposed of her body on this man's property, where roofing shingles were reportedly dumped. According to my source, the asphalt in the shingles makes the body more difficult to detect. My source's former husband allegedly told her this in June or July of 2006. By February of 07, he had succumbed to lung cancer. He evidently knew of his diagnosis when he told the story to my source, but he never told her that he was ill. My source claims that she also saw this account written on the back of a document that was in a briefcase. This briefcase and other belongings were picked up by the deceased man's brother after he passed. His brother is the man who I dropped in on, unannounced. When I showed up at the brother's house, it became obvious that this was the first time he had heard this information about the briefcase. The shirtless older man reached behind him to find something to sit on as he was processing what I was telling him. He stared at the ground the entire time with a confused look on his face. 
You could tell that he was racking his brain, trying to remember anything from that briefcase. I didn't give him any details about what was written down, other than it explained what had happened to Casey. He stated that he had gone through everything in that briefcase and didn't remember mention of Casey McDaniel. I explained to him that I was told that it was randomly written on the back of an unrelated document. He then told me, quote, Man, I don't even know if I still have that shit. Unquote. I was feeling pretty guilty for just showing up and dropping this bombshell on him. Again, it was sweltering outside, so I wanted to let him get back inside his house. I started walking toward my car, telling him that I would let him go, but that I would write down my number in case he did find the briefcase. Well, if you want me, <clears throat> just leave my number with you. And if you if you happen to, like I said, if, if there's nothing in there, you know, that, yeah. that's one more rumor I can put to bed. Yeah. Let me find something to write on. I'll give you my number and my name. I got something out in the car, I'm sure. As I was walking back to give him my number, he said, quote, I'll tell you what my brother told me about what happened to that girl, unquote. Then he basically told me the same thing that was allegedly written down and filed away in that briefcase. So just when I think we're starting to close in on this thing and are getting away from some of the outlandish-sounding stories about Mr. X, we're right back where we started. I have two verbal accounts concerning Mr. X, from this deceased man's ex-wife and his brother. And it's one thing to tell people a story about what happened to Casey. Those are a dime a dozen. But it's another thing to write it down on a piece of paper when you know that you're terminally ill. So without the handwritten documentation, there is one more witness to this alleged confession from Mr. X who could either substantiate or refute everything I've been told. Cindy's sister. And I had been in communication with her early on in this podcast. She has spoken to me off the record in the past. She was even trying to connect me with Cindy at one time. But the communications from her have slowed to a trickle in recent months. So I sent her a text asking if she would be willing to talk to me about this man. I didn't give her any details except the man's name. She said that she would be willing to talk to me that afternoon. After leaving Milan, I texted her asking if she were available to talk. I got no response. I gave her two hours and then called her. This is Brandon Barnett. I left a voicemail. It's been three days, and I haven't heard back. Thank you. Bye. In our off-the-record conversations in the past, she has indicated that it was her opinion that anyone looking into Mr. X was, quote, barking up the wrong tree, unquote. And this is why I was shocked to hear her name mentioned as a witness. And of all the people that I have tracked down involving the briefcase after reading that one passage in the Jackson Sun, I figured that she would have been the first one to talk to me. And now... She's the lone holdout. And this is why this case has stagnated for 21 years. People not coming forward with vital information is why these rumors continue to cloud the facts in this case. If Mr. X had nothing to do with this, I want to clear this mess off the table once and for all. Or if he was responsible, I want to find that out. This is beyond frustrating. I'm sick and tired of being yanked around. And if there is a written account from a dying man, I want to see it. And I want to know if Cindy's sister was indeed an eyewitness to Mr. X's alleged confession on that day at Beach Lake. And if the woman who made the anonymous phone call to Jerry Hartsfield mentioned in the 1997 article is still around, she needs to come forward as well. Because this is not the same woman that I talked to that started me down the briefcase path. My source didn't get her information from her ex-husband until 2006. This is bordering on ridiculous at this point. And it's time for everyone to man up.
guys, Brandon here. I need your help. Searching for Ghosts is made on a shoestring budget. It costs money and time to be able to produce this. I don't believe in doing fundraisers like GoFundMe to support this project. I want to provide a good or service before I ask anyone to spend their hard-earned money. A while back, I put out a four-song album on iTunes and Amazon. It's called Left of Nashville. I recorded everything myself and am quite proud of it. It even caught the eye of some publishers in Los Angeles. So I'm asking that if you are enjoying Searching for Ghosts, that you would pick up a copy of the Left of Nashville EP. Again, you can find this on both iTunes and Amazon.com. The cost is under $4. I will have a link to this in the episode show notes. The way to access the show notes is to simply tap the Searching for Ghosts cover art for the episode. You will see the links for Amazon and iTunes. I appreciate your support. By purchasing the Left of Nashville EP, you are directly supporting Searching for Ghosts, which will allow it to continue. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Left of Nashville Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.